This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. This week, we take a look at pasture management and carbon programs. Just how much money are we losing with weeds in a pasture? We're talking basics that make big differences. And in the second half of the show, we take a look at a new carbon program with a one-year contract, a feature appealing to many farmers. Plus, we take a look at the latest land price forecast. Those are our topics for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why we've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on our corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now, that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plan. In these times of rising nitrogen prices, having that flexibility with a proven product is more important than ever. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or simply go to pivotbio.com. As some of you may know, we've raised stalker cattle on pasture since before I was born. So pasture management is a topic I'm always personally interested in, and I know many of you have pastures to manage as well. Jeff Clark is the pasture market development specialist with Corteva AgriScience. Many of you are familiar with their line of pasture products, but we spent most of our time talking about some basic yet important things we can do that will put cash in our pockets. Here's our conversation. Jeff, many people are familiar with Corteva's line of of pasture and range products, but if they aren't, why don't you kind of give them a quick overview and then we'll jump in from there. Absolutely. We have uh, from our residual line, which is going to be like Duracore herbicide, Grazon Next herbicide, um, and then our non-residual line, probably the most famous is Remedy Ultra, uh, Remedy itself, and then uh, Pasture Garden. So but we have a lot of other herbicides out there in our portfolio, but those are probably the main ones that our ranchers are using today. So some of those have been around for many years, and so some people are very familiar with them. Do you find that over time, do people continue to use, or is it something that we get away from and we don't think about our pastures? I bet it's a little bit all over the board. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's scattered. So what we find over the years is that it, when someone uses like Duracore Grazon Next, a residual herbicide, because they've got a really nasty weed problem, Usually about that third year, they go, man, this really looks good. I've managed my grazing. I don't see hardly any weeds out there. So I think I'm going to skip a year to try to put a little money back in my pocket um, and let the cattle do the rest. Well, what they find out is uh, even if if it's a drought year or a high moisture year, Ah, we start to see them a weed start creeping back up pretty hot and fast. And when we start to see those weeds, those are nutrient uh, uh, drainers from our forages. Uh, we start to see that our grasses aren't lasting as long. And what we thought we saved, uh, actually it bites us in the honey because we got to end up putting out supplemental feed or we've got to you know, rotate our cattle off of that pasture faster, uh, which is not you know, good for the cattle either. Talk for a moment about... The, the idea of, okay, how do I create the best pasture possible? Because there are some people out there who say, okay, I don't want to use herbicide because I'm going to lose some of the good grasses or legumes specifically. So talk to that for a moment. Yeah, so when we're talking about legumes, make sure you know what legumes you have out there, first of all. Um, you know, if it's just general growing white clover, 
a, a lot of that is not going to produce a lot of protein or, or the nitrogen that you, you're thinking that it does. Um, usually when it comes down to, to, to legumes, uh, you, you've got to have that go through the cow or you've got to have it slough off, die off, before it really truly releases the nitrogen back into that pasture. So let that be a consideration and, and not something that drives you not to spray to control weeds. Okay. Outside of that is how much weeds do you have in your pasture versus your grass? Because if we can get those removed off of our pasture, then, well, as the old saying goes, as you probably know, uh, you know, that one pound of weed removal is going to give you a pound, pound and a half of forage growth out there in that, in that pasture. How do I need to think about what grasses I'm going to have in a pasture? And I know that that depends on where I live. So, you know, certain things will grow other places. But how do I think about that piece, about what, what, what are the beneficial things I want growing out there? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, uh, forages is the cheapest way to feed cattle, okay? So, depending on where you live, what is your main, what is your main grass that you are trying to grow? And you might have to look at implementing more grasses in your field, especially if you've coming out of a drought year. Um, so, you, you want a high-protein grass. You want a good TDN grass, something that's going to stick around with that cow and not just, you know, go right through her or be straw, basically, at the end of the day. Um, talk with your local extension agent, talk with uh, your local uh, university and see what they're recommending for your area, but make sure you're not overgrazing. No matter what you're putting out there, whatever grasses that you're looking to go in, uh, just make sure you're not going to overgraze that because then that just puts you right back in a, in a negative situation. So people are always going to say, well, there's a cost to this. So, but I'm sure you're going to probably give me some math and say, well, hey, yeah, there is cost of certainly buy a product, but what you get is much more than what you've invested. Absolutely. So there's always a cost to everything, all right? Uh, And usually when it comes down to a cost with a rancher, it's probably one of the hardest conversations to have because we are on tight budgets. But when it comes down to grazing versus, you know, feeding a supplemental feed for that cow to get those weight gains on there, with forages, we're talking around 45 cents. And with uh, going out with a, you know, regular grain feed, you know, when we're talking about poundage, we're, we're about $2. So it's, it's actually saving you money on having good forages. So you might have that upfront cost on the herbicide, but that is going to pay you back a lot quicker than paying $2 for that pound uh, with supplemental feed. I know that you would do research all over the, you know, the country, but do you have a good way to quantify, okay, if you use this product, this is how much more forage you can expect, not only more forage, but the quality of what you've got out there. How would you answer that? Yeah, so when someone asks me that question, I will simply say this. When it comes down to a residual herbicide like Duracore Grazon Next, um, we, we see that it is very aggressive on majority of weeds. So take Duracore. We're talking 140 plus weeds that we can control pretty pretty easy at say 16, 18, 20 ounces. At that point in time, we are reducing the amount of uh, uh, weeds out there. Okay, so that means if we if we remove a pound of weeds, we're automatically getting a pound of forages growth back. So that right there is almost like free feed in itself. But not only that, it is uh, not robbing our nutrients for our grasses so our grasses are going to absolutely get the water get the macronutrients get the secondary nutrients that it's needing so that it has a a good elongated leaf space on top of the soil a good elongated root system and we're talking you know up until the reproductive system of a grass anyway uh, in that vegetative stage we're talking you know easily 18 percent protein in our you know cool season grasses 
When we think of herbicides in crops, we think sometimes about worrying about weed resistance. Is it something we have to think about with pasture herbicides? Um, I mean, right now we're not seeing any. Um, but what I would say is always scout your pastures. Always scout your pastures. Even uh, I was just out checking cows and feeding calves the other day, and, you know, there's thistle uh, right there. And I spray every year. So Mother Nature, one thing about her is she's sneaky. And no matter what you throw at her, she's always going to throw something back. So be proactive. Uh, get ahead of uh, the situation instead of the situation getting ahead of you. Um, and then, like I said, you know, scout early. But also I just want to throw one more thing in there. Soil fertility. Soil fertility plays a big key in uh, controlling weeds as well. Making sure that pH is up there so your grasses are going to grow healthy. Would you suggest that farmers and ranchers go out and then not only soil sample, but even grid sample pastures? Some will do that, but should we treat that pasture much like we would treat a regular crop field, like for corn or beans? Absolutely. Absolutely. you got to remember, you know, uh, corn is, is a grass. And, and how we treat cornfields and how we treat pasture fields is night and day. But that's the thought process we got to be on. Um, absolutely. Do, do a grid sample. Um, get aggressive with it. You know, do it every other year. I know some people say, well, I did a, a soil sample five years ago. Every Mother Nature changes every year. You, you take the drought. You take, you know, in the east where they've had an abundance of water, abundance of moisture. Um, that changes a lot of things in our soil profile. So every other year, get that soil sample, do it correctly, it will pay you back. What about the timing of the application of the herbicide? How do I figure out when that works, when is optimal, I guess? So basically it depends on what the weed pressure you're seeing uh, in, your, in your field. So if you're having more of a summer weed, uh, perennial weed problem, then we need to address it during that, that time of growth period. We don't want to go out and spray in the month of March, and yet you're having more issues in, in June and July. So it's about what the pressure is of certain weeds uh, that, is, that is giving you a negative return investment. Uh, if it is those spring weeds and, and you're trying to get ahead of uh, letting your grasses take off and uh, for the rest of the year or you're dealing with a hay field, then, yeah, we want to come back into that March, April, early springtime period and address it then. But, again, if it's weeds that are growing, um, like ironweed in a lot of areas, it's going to grow in that June, that July time period. We want to address it at the proper time so that you do get the proper return investment of the money you spent. You're out there dealing with this all the time. So other things that we need to keep in mind uh, as we think about our pastures? Rotate your pastures. Rotate your grazing. I see this all the time. Uh, when we go out and we see a cattle guy go out and spray, he gets great weed control. His grass starts to thrive. And then we just uh, ruin it all by leaving our cattle on there too long. Uh, leave leaf space. That's going to that's gonna help you in so many ways. Uh, you say, well, I, I end up having to, you know, when I rotate that cow off, there's still a lot of grass uh, out there. I don't want to do that. To me, that's wasteful. No, actually... It, you're going to allow it to not go into a stressful state. That way, if Mother Nature does throw an, uh, you know, an oddball at us, like a, you know, a drought issue or too much moisture issue, we've got enough leaf space there for photosensitization that that grass won't go into an extra stress because we've grazed it down to the ground. And then the other thing is, when we graze that forages down to the ground, we're running into a herd health issue, which means we're allowing parasites now to be ingested into our cattle because then parasites are going to be in that three-inch uh, leaf space and below. Uh, you know, we can run into respiratory issues, especially if we're too dry and we're, you know, grazing down to that ground, uh, that crown of that grass. You know, it, we can run into respiratory issues with our calves because of in, uh, ingestion of the dust. So it plays a big factor of managing your grazing on multiple levels. I know that you have a lot of great information out there, so how can folks find out more, not only about your products, but a lot of good information just about 
having better and healthier pastures. Absolutely. We got uh, white papers, uh, talk about herd health, proper pasture management, uh, how to get a hold of reps, and you can find all that information at www.rangeandpasture.com. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you. In the second half of our show, I recently spoke with Clay Edwards, who is Cargill's Sustainability Program Lead. There are several carbon programs out there, and that's one of the major topics we discuss. How should we look at all those programs? A lot of us are aware of the options, but a relative few are actually participating. What's keeping us from doing so? Clay and I had a good conversation about programs as a whole. Clay, when we think about Cargill and sustainability, tell us a little bit more about what that means, because there can be a lot underneath that heading. Yeah, it's, it's a broad subject, but obviously, uh, so I work with our U.S. row crops business, and, and one of the things we're super passionate about is, uh, is how do we impact climate change from a, from a broader scale, and really our solution is agriculture, and the farmer customers play a huge role in that. Uh, there's a growing demand from the end user, demand customer, you know, your, your food, fiber, fuel companies, they're looking for these climate solutions, and uh, Cargill, we have the ability, we know farmers, we know these demand customers, we're trying to connect the dots to bring this market to life. With that market, as you think about it, who truly drives it? Is it the end customer? Is it the farmer? Or how do you marry those two? Because you mentioned both. There is an interplay between the two. So today, uh, I always joke, like, we're on about year two of the next hundred in agriculture. And in an emerging market, this might be a once-in-a-generation opportunity for most farming operations. Really, it's the discovery of a new commodity. So to your question of who plays an important role, everybody does. Uh, so it takes farmers to have interest to participate, to test and learn this out. And it takes demand customers willing to learn as well. Uh, because with no, no supply, there is no demand. And so as we build up the supply generation uh, for these carbon credits, bringing this to life, uh, demand is coming right along with it. So let's dive into some of these types of things, not only the program, but perhaps some of the, the questions that farmers have out there. You know, first of all, one of the things I hear is a lot of farmers are already doing a lot of practices, and so they wonder, can I get, in a sense, paid for what I'm already doing? What are you finding out there in, in the marketplace? Yeah, so carbon markets are, are the standards are really set by independent uh, verifiers, such as like Climate Action Reserve or Vera. They're the ones that are setting the like what qualifies as a carbon credit. And additionality is is a, is a piece of a majority of those programs where it has to be a new practice. The thing I would say with that is is like a lot of farmers that we've met with over the last year. I mean, thousands of farmers they rule themselves out, or or they're just like, oh, I don't qualify because I've already been doing that. But literally. Every time we sit with a farmer, they throw their fields into our system. There's, there's an opportunity on every single farm. Like I've met very few farmers where they have no opportunity uh, to grow or expand. There's always certain niches that, that those opportunities are there. So that'd be the first myth. Don't rule yourself out. <laughs> well, do you find then that are a lot of farmers having to go make a lot of changes to be able to qualify for these programs. I know that there's not a typical farmer because all of us are doing different things, but what are the things that they are in a sense asked to do or the changes they need to make often? Yeah, so our program is focused around the addition of either uh, a tillage reduction, which is like reduced till or, uh, or a no-till, or the addition of a cover crop. And Cargill, we also offer an industry-leading one-year contract. Uh, so far, we want to meet farmers where they're at, not locking them in for long-term commitments. Now, that being said, we want farmers to renew their contract every single year, and we're proud to announce that uh, this is the second year of our program, and over 90% of our customers that enrolled in year one renewed for year two. As you think about programs, you mentioned the one-year uh, contract. That seems to be a question a lot of farmers have is, is how long I'm going to be locked in. So I guess the, the shorter contract gives them flexibility, but why would I ever want a longer contract? Some folks out there are offering that. 
Uh, so to me, I think it's uh, you just have to weigh the options, is you know, and the things you should ask uh, like your carbon partner that who you're going to partner with is first of all, what data do I have to have to uh, give them? How like who do like am I talking to a physical person or am I left out to hang and do this all myself? Uh, what am I getting paid and when are those checks coming? Uh, and so these are all questions in Cargill's program that we've tried to really uh, meet the farmer where they're at. We understand that they want to deal with people. So we have a full sustainability staff uh, scattered across our footprint. And so you're going to talk to real human beings that are going to help you answer these questions. We have a best-in-class digital platform where farmers can go create an account, literally enroll within minutes. And we also can give you a live quote of what your carbon payment is right there at your home computer. Uh, and we pay in two tranches. We pay half up front when you enroll and the other half at the final because uh, it takes a full year to, to create that carbon credit. And so Cargill, uh, we're, we've already paid our year one customers their first half payment and they're going to be getting their second half payment here in January. So if a farmer's interested in doing that, then they can go and can they put all that in and find out what their payment would be before they're ever locked in to have to do something or how does that work? Absolutely. Uh, so right now our, our, our enrollment period is closed for this year. We just closed it up, but stay tuned. And so spring of 23, we'll be launching our, our year three program. And so literally, just like you said, a, I mean, a farmer could go in, create an account, you could throw in your fields and you could see what you could do. It. You, it's designed to do it all self-driven. Uh, but obviously, we want to we want to interact with you and answer questions and, and help coach you through it, through what may or may not work uh, in the program. And so uh, you will see that live quote. Give farmers an idea of what happens on the back end of this. There's these carbon credits created. It, does Cargill then sell those? How do they use those carbon credits? Because I, I know Cargill would be interested in sustainability, but there's got to be somewhere that money's coming from to pay those farmers. Yeah. So right now, Cargill, we are we are fully self-funding uh, the programs. You know, right? So so we're not. We uh, we chose strategically. Uh, you know, to stay out of any any uh, 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 farmers' aid, government funding programs, right? So Cargill, the House, we're, we're funding these programs. We feel that's the right thing to do. Um, but there's but these carbon credits create dual benefits. So Cargill, uh, we have our own climate commitments that we have to meet, uh, as well as we have demand customers, food, fiber, fuel customers are looking for climate solutions. So it's really kind of twofold. And so obviously we we we're bullish that there's commercial opportunities in this marketplace. I would say the market's still really illiquid and undeveloped. Uh, but that's where the, that's where we have to have the demand built up. So really, this January will be the end of our year one customers. So we will actually have our first carbon credits to bring to market come this January. Uh, and so we're excited to be able to uh, to, to build that demand and, and the growing conversations are coming coming daily. If you were a farmer, what would you what would be the questions you would be asking? What are the things that you're hearing, or what are the things that farmers should be asking about any carbon cr- program out there? Yeah, so the big thing is, is uh, what data do you need for me? How difficult is it going to be for me to enroll? Is it something I'm going to have to really uh, manage uh, myself, or do I have a partner uh, or somebody to talk to through it? And then the biggest thing I'd be asking is, is transparency around payment. What exactly is it that I'm going to get paid? When am I going to get paid? Uh, all those questions should be out there. So Cargill, like this last year, we were really transparent. We were paying $25 a metric ton, and so we're paying on an outcomes-based program. Because uh, every acre is different, you know. So, uh, my, you know, my acre might produce a half a ton an acre of carbon. Your acre might produce one ton of uh, of carbon an acre. You know, every field, every farm, every geography is a little bit different, uh, and so we feel that that's a great beauty, and that's also a benefit of the one year contract because we want farmers to renew every year. You got to hold our feet to the fire. If we're not price competitive, are you going to renew? You're not, right? And so that's that's why we've seen just a resounding effort in farmers renewing in the program too. But I would challenge. 
compare at least two programs side by side before you do anything. Don't just go into one program. I mean, give everybody an honest look, and I'm confident that farmers will choose Cargill Regen Connect. Whenever you look at how much has been uh, carbon sequestered, I guess you have a baseline to work from, and then going forward, do you still work off that same baseline, or do I have to beat my my best every year, so to speak? Yeah, great question. And so we do a 12-month look back, and that's how the baseline is established of what was on that field the previous 12 months, and that's how the baseline is established, and that is the baseline that is always referred to. Uh, so you don't have to beat your baseline every year. It's all back to that initial 12-month look back. The program's been going for a while now. Where do you see this headed? Because farmers, I think, are always a little bit skeptical of new programs. So where are we headed in the future? Yeah, so I, I, this uh, last summer I had a chance to speak at a convention uh, with a 1,000 farmers, and I asked the question, how many of you are aware of carbon markets? Every hand went up. How many of you have had somebody sit at your kitchen table or on the tailgate of your truck and explain what it means to you and your farm? Very few. So I would say be willing to meet with a trusted resource. And, and, and to me, that, that's where I think you beat a lot of the myths and ruling yourself out is find that partner. Cargill, we'd love to be, be that uh, partner. So we have all of our grain originators that are well, fully versed in this program to educate, uh, as well as a full sustainability team. And if you're looking for information, uh, challenge people to visit our website, cargillregenconnect.com. Shoot us an email, and I'd personally give you a call. Uh, and again, uh, we look forward to, to engaging with you before we enroll our program next spring. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you much. To round out this week's show, I had a chance to talk with Paul Shattuck, who is Senior Vice President of Real Estate Operations at Farmers National Company. We've been talking about land prices for a while now, and Paul provides a look at just what has taken place this past year and what may be ahead. So, Paul, certainly at Farmers National Company, you have a pulse on, on land prices, what's going on there. We continue to hear that land prices are higher. They are high. Give me an idea of really how much we've seen land appreciate over the last year, how far back you want to go, because it's sometimes hard for us to know what high is. Yeah, so the we use a lot of data that's provided by the Fed and, and the USDA comparing year-over-year year values. And a year ago, we saw estimates that they were going to be 23% higher than the year before. And when it all came and shook out, it was about 27% higher. And so in July, we looked at that again, and we were up another 14%. And I'm, I'm guessing that we're probably going to end up in that realm in certain areas where we're going to be higher, closer to the 20%. So year over year, how, how far back have we been advancing at that pace, or is the curve continuing to get steeper as we go along here? So the curve in the last three years is, has definitely been steeper. Uh, if we go back five to 10 years, we do see that steady, more incremental increase. But uh, we saw a sharp rise in them during uh, the 2012-2014 period, and then a very sharp uh, increase over the past three years. You know, we certainly hear interest prices are rising. How big of an impact are we going to see? I don't know that we have seen any impact yet, I, but what are you seeing out there? So surprisingly, we're not seeing much um, setback in activity from buyers uh, based on interest rates yet. But I think we're going to. Um, we're just we just haven't found that trigger point. Evidently, that uh, seven to eight percent interest rates are not high enough to slow them down. But if we go a little bit higher, I think you'll continue to see that pressure along with inflationary pressures that will will cause them to step back. I'm sure you're keeping up with rental or lease rates as well. Is that curve just as steep, or what are we seeing on that side? 
Yeah, the the curve on uh, on cash rents is is definitely sharply higher. Um, the cash rents tend to be a little bit of a latent factor off of land values, but they're not very far behind. And I think that you're going to see increases in cash rents on average five to ten percent again this year. Are you seeing any difference then in the amount of land that's coming up for sale? Has this been more lucrative for people to say, hey, I want to sell because the market's higher? Or are they saying, no, I want to hold on to it because I could rent it or lease it for more money? Yeah, the, that owning land is is all about opportunity. So the, some landowners are saying, you know, these land are record land values. I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. Others are saying, well, this is an opportunity with high commodity markets to retain this as an asset and let it grow that way. As a farmer, what would be in my mind as far as concerns? Certainly, I want to continue to be out there and be productive and proactive. But we have seen times in the past where things went down. I'm old enough to remember some of that. So what should I be thinking about maybe in the back of my mind? So I think the a farm operator is going to have the same concerns we do as a company. When we look down the road, 2023, we're, we're, we have a cautious outlook because we have interest rates that are rising inflation that's not under control and things if commodity markets have a hiccup then that's probably really going to slow things down fast so i think a farm operator has to look at it from the standpoint of if i'm going to uh, grow my operation i'm going to have to bid on land and uh, then the uh, the next side of it is can i be profitable Thanks for listening to our show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and now TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.